Anytime I'd encourage you guys to come on this trip, I say, if you've got a heart for camping, if you've got a heart for fishing, you will love this trip and you will want to come back. Because I have yet to have a man who went on it who liked to fish, liked to camp, who didn't say, I'll come back again. This was worth my time. If you've got a heart for men simply being together, you probably resonated with this video. Even if you're not a camper or fisherman, maybe you're a woman here today, but you know there's value in men being together, you were enjoying watching what took place there. If you got a heart for men's ministry, you were glad to see what was taking place there. You'll be glad to know that the way Jeff Connor stated it to me, he said it this way, it's a mistake not to come. Because ministry happens among our men. So if you have a heart for what you saw there, you were delighted in that video. But let's be honest. Some of us saw there was a video coming up about the men fishing and you're like, oh, um, not interested. Because your heart doesn't resonate with what that was about. You couldn't connect with it. See, that's the thing about our hearts. We're very individualistic in what it is that our hearts are attuned to, what we resonate with. We watch this in our children, do we not? I happened to be going through my phone recently, and I came across this picture of, uh, taken when I was on sabbatical a couple years back, and um, Heather Vedbroughton and her family had come over, met with me on the shores of Clearwater Lake, bought me ice cream, and we visited for about an hour. Then we took a picture before we went. And every time I see that picture, I'm reminded of a great day with the Vedbroughton family. I'm reminded of great-tasting ice cream on the shores of Clearwater Beach. But I'm also reminded the first time Heather began to describe her family to me. And she described her two daughters. And she said, Taylor is my artistic daughter. She's into the music, and she's into the arts. And she said, and Jessica is my competitor. She's aggressive in sports. And as I watched the two of them through the years, that's exactly who they were. Each of their hearts were inclined in a different direction. As parents, we, we see that, that we are individual in the way our hearts are inclined. But today, we're going to look at a universal heart thing. That's why I'm calling this message the inescapable undeniable heart thing. And the birds introduced us to our text for today. Some of you are rockers, okay, from the 60s. You were smiling. You're like, oh, I'm liking this. Because that song is, that you were listening to is directly from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And it precedes our memory verse for today. But it reads this, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, 
and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. What profit has a worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to, good, to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. When we come to the book of Ecclesiastes... Written by Solomon, the wisest man in the world, a man gifted with wisdom. And as you move through the book, you see that he has, through his years, he has sought to look at life from a number of different perspectives, trying to get his arms around exactly what is this thing called life? And how is it that we live it wisely? Our Verses from 1 to 10 that were in that bird song set up our text for today, and we find out what he's wrestling with in those particular verses. It's about time. He concludes that everything is made beautiful in its time, that according to God's timing, there is unfolding in the course of this world a plan of his making. Now, we live as a creation in a moment of time, relatively speaking. I realize, you know, we might live to be 100 years old, but relative to eternity, that's but a moment. Isn't that what the Scripture says? When it basically says all flesh is like grass, we dry up, we blow away. Our experience on this earth is but a moment in time. But here's the thing, friends. Is that text said that God makes everything beautiful in its time? We see that. We know that. Friday night, Lori and I experienced it. We were waiting for our son, Matt, to bring three of our grandkids with us who will be staying with us for this next week. We're loving having them. But Lori came across something on a PBS station, which is basically a promotional to get you to give them money. That's what it's for. And in this particular promotional, they kept playing all these old bands from the 60s. And you could, for only $150, you could get seven CDs with all of these bands from the 60s and all of this great music that we can't let die. I felt obligated to spend them 150 bucks because we can't let the music die, okay? But Davy Jones... He's out there leading the, cheer, the singing as, he, you know, the daydream believer. And some of you will know this, right? Cheer up, sleepy Jean, oh, what can... And, and the people are cheering, they're singing with Davy Jones. It was wonderful as all these people cheered. 
these white-haired ladies and these bald men, and they're out there trying to dance, get down with them bad selves as they sing with Davy Jones from back in the 60s. The birds who sang this song on that particular show sang Tambourine Man, right? Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play your song for me. I'm not sleepy and there ain't no place I'm going to. Some of you are feeling it, aren't you? Here, go to PBS. You can buy all of these. I was really so excited when all that they said was Jefferson Starship. And they no sooner said, introduced the next thing as Jefferson Starship, and I immediately went... When the truth is found to be lies. And then they came in with that one. I guessed it right. I was like, boom, I nailed it. And as I was enjoying all those songs, a memory from my childhood came across my brain. And I just laughed. Because some of you will remember this also. You had this shared experience with me. That when you were growing up, your parents wanted to listen to Lawrence Welk. (laughs) There we go. I see that hand. Yeah. And we sat in the living room as mom and dad listened to Lawrence Welk. And my dad thought Lawrence Welk was wonderful, right? With the Lennon sisters and a one and a two. And you know what I'm talking about, right? And what did we think? As my dad was remembering music from his day through Lawrence Welk, we thought, boy, that's old and boring. And I realized that as they appealed to us, I said to Laurie, I said, you realize this is our Lawrence Welk. We are all jamming to these tunes. We're thinking this is incredible. And I could just see what my parents had done. Now, why do I go through all of that? Because in our time, it was beautiful. Because it marked something of our identity. It marked something of our generation. It said something about what our experiences were. And that our experiences had value and they were significant. Even though kids from today are clueless as to who these bands are and what these songs were. Because our moment in time had come and gone. There was a recent Jeopardy show on, and one of them had to do with music and bands. And out of the five questions that are listed there, I knew not one song nor one band. Not a one, because my time clearly has come and gone. But it was beautiful when it was my time. My point being, we live in this moment of time. But the text says so much more than simply he makes all things beautiful in its time. Because that's where verse 11 begins, and that is our memory verse for today. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And then it says, also. And the also is where we want to camp. Also, he has put eternity in their heart. You see, friends, that text indicates that we have a vast perspective. We are able to see things in a much larger picture than that moment of time. 
And this perspective, this vast perspective, is given to us specifically from God Himself. So we live in a moment of time with the capacity to understand the passing of time, the capacity to contemplate the vastness of time, and the capacity to ponder the significance of time. So we are physically bound to our moment in time, but we have the mental capacity to think beyond it, to what has gone before and what will come after. God has given us a vast perspective. But the text says yet even more. Yes, we have a vast perspective, but it is accompanied by a limited understanding. For the text goes on to say, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. We know there is more. God has placed that understanding of eternity in our hearts, so we grasp there is something more. We long to understand more. We wish we could figure it out. But it's beyond the capacity of our minds to grasp what our hearts can only ponder. We can't reach out and get our arms around it. And this, too, is by God's design. Now, some will perceive this. They were going to try and make something of this that, well, it's an injustice or it's a bad joke that God would give us the capacity to think in vast ways or have hearts that are filled with vast concepts and ideas and ponderings and yet never get our arms around it. So we're always left just questioning. Is that an injustice? Is it a bad joke? It is neither, friends. Yes, we have a vast perspective accompanied by a limited understanding, but it's not a bad joke. It's not an injustice. It is all for a significant purpose. That purpose is found in verse 14. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. The significant purpose, the arrangement that God has placed by putting eternity in our hearts, yet keeping our minds limited from grasping everything he does from beginning to end, the purpose in that is to keep us humble before him to force us back to that place that says, Lord, I, I don't understand everything. I don't grasp everything. So I must yield myself to the fact that you do and that you are making everything beautiful in its time and that you are outworking sovereignly a plan upon this earth that will one day make sense but will also bring glory to you and to you alone because it will be, be beyond the capacity of any of us to have ever put it in play. This design is there to humble us before him, remind us who he is. That's just explaining what the text says. If you'll allow me a few minutes, 
I'd like to interact with the significance of that. Our vast perception generates within us this sense that there's something more. He's placed eternity in our hearts. We have an inescapable, undeniable heart thing that refuses to accept that this reality, this moment in time, this is all that there is. Because God has given us that in our hearts. And it's my observation that there are two elements that men always embrace. Men, women, mankind. We always embrace two elements. One is purpose and another is morality. We are constantly, whether we stop to think about it, whether we're cognizant of our thinking or not, but we are constantly raising questions, trying to put things in, into perspective relative to these two elements minimally, purpose and morality. None of us can practically live our lives without these two elements in place. They keep overtaking us. We could say, well, I'm going to live as if there's no, mor- no such thing as morality. I'm going to live as if there's no such thing as purpose. But pretty soon you realize I'm believing there is purpose, there is morality. And somehow I'm expressing it in my words, in my actions, in how I live. Carl Sagan, who had a show out years ago called Cosmos. And he was supposedly so incredibly insightful I recall, and just watching one clip, I didn't follow his his show, but I remember seeing a clip of his show where he effectively said that mankind evolved so that the universe can know itself because we can contemplate the universe. Think about that. That's just what this text says. There's eternity in our hearts. We, We can contemplate things beyond our moment in time. So mankind evolved so that the universe can know itself. He had to somehow inject purpose into an otherwise purposeless system of random combinations of chemistry, matter, that supposedly just evolved through the millennia. He injected purpose into a totally non-purpose thing. Actually, when I contemplate that, it sounds to me like the Trinity. It sounds, the Trinity, right? You got one God, three persons. What, read the theologians. Here's what they'll tell you. God was in fellowship with himself. God was in relationship with himself. It always has been. So Sagan throws in this thing about, well, the universe evolved man so that man can know the universe and the universe can know itself. It's like, why is it that you have to eliminate God when you're just coming right back? what the theologians have been saying forever. God knows himself. And I was interested that uh, I'd already submitted this, this outline to be put in the bulletin to Brenda, and then I saw on the Wicktail page, after that, I thought, thank you, Lord, because this, this is a gift from the Lord here. It's a quote, which they always have on the Wicktail page. I love reading them. And it said this, from Carl Sagan again, for small creatures such as we... The vastness is bearable only through love. The word vastness, I thought that's right there in my my outline. We've been given a vast perspective. He's commenting on that. 
And he says the only way that as we're so small that the only way we can find bearing up in this vastness is through love. Well, friends, here's what I'm trying to get at. And I know you've got to think it through. And can I encourage you to go back and listen to this a few times if need be. The fact that we even contemplate the vastness, we even think about it, that's eternity in our hearts. That's what our text is saying today. Indicates that Sagan believes there's something greater than random existence. There has to be something more. That we're, that we're contemplating the vastness. So it causes me to ask these kinds of questions. Why do we contemplate? Why is it that the result of some evolutionary process of random chemical matters, just this, this thing that got going, why is it that it becomes self-aware and then contemplates itself? Ever asked that kind of question? Why? Why would it do that? I don't believe the chair sitting right here is contemplating this chair over there. I don't believe it is. So why do we create a system we believe has to be able to contemplate? Here's another question. Why do we need to bear up? in the midst of the vastness. Why don't we just explain that, you know what, I feel pretty insecure here. In fact, I am pretty insignificant and the vastness could crush me and so, okay. But why do we have to bear up? Why do we have to relate to it, respond to it, interact with it? Why? We're just, just a, you know, an interesting rock is all we are. We're just made of, according to that perspective, we're just made of chemistry and matter. And here's another question I want to put to him. I say, why only the morality of love? You've made a moral statement here, effectively. We got, you know, we got to love, man. Come on, people now. Let's love one another right now. All right? Back to the 60s. Right? Because we all would admit love is good. Love is powerful. Love is right. We want to be in a place where there is love. But why do we accept that as the only way to bear up in the midst of the vastness? I'd like to throw out a couple other options. What about power? What about simply gathering power so that I can focus my attention on using my power to accomplish whatever I want? And I'm fine. Who cares about the rest of the universe? Because i got enough power to make things happen the way I want them. I'll get through life just fine. What about hatred? Hatred can cause me to focus my attention and not worry about the vastness of the universe around me. can do incredible things based upon the hatred. Think of what Adolf Hitler did with hatred against the Jews and how he focused attention and people and moved armies in his desire to take over the world. Hatred was adequate. It doesn't have to be love. What about exclusive tribalism just for regional control? What about, look, look, okay, I can't understand the entire world. I can't understand it. But I know what? There are people who are like me and we're going to come together and we're going to set up... Uh, walls or whatever you want to call it around ourselves so we can protect ourselves and this is what we'll focus on and I don't have to worry about the vastness of my puny little self here. So my point is just because Carl Sagan said it doesn't mean his statement is true. That's his observation. I got one other question I'd like to put to Carl. When we look at the vastness of our little being and the vastness of this it's like Hey, Carl, 
How about the fear of God? Because that's what verse 14 tells us. The fear of God will enable us to bear up under this because we then begin to grasp there is a purpose. There is a, a person behind everything that is going on big enough to hold, as the scripture would say, everything we see in this part of his hand. There is one much greater than this who reveals himself as loving us, caring for us, reaching out to us. Hey, Carl, how about the fear of God as a means of bearing up? Because that's what the text says is the purpose of this vast perspective with limited understanding. When I was writing my first book, I remember hearing Richard Dawkins on the radio, and I reference this in the book. He says, we can all agree, because somebody asked him as, a, as an anti-theist, as somebody who is, who is aggressively trying to shut down theism, somebody asked him the question on a radio program, well then, uh, where does morality come from? And he's like, oh, we can all come up with our own morality. We can all agree that murder is wrong. Well, actually, that's not true. We won't all agree on that. But I find myself asking a different question. Why do we bother trying to even define right or wrong? So what if man kills himself off? So what if the earth becomes inhabitable to human existence or the wonderful, you know, created animals that are out there? So what? There's no meaning. There's no purpose. It's just random stuff that somehow took place. Why are we even asking that question? But we have always asked that, we always deal with that question on the assumption that right and wrong are real and true. They're real things. We always start there. We never try and argue that right and wrong are real things. And the atheists start there too. See, they know there's something called right and wrong. They just can't explain why there is right and wrong. They jump that step, friends, and begin to argue what is right or wrong, whether abortion or not but not whether right or wrong even exists. Are you following me? I know I'm asking you to think. Came across something recently about atheist chaplain. And the guy's trying to become an atheist chaplain in the ministry, in the military. And his, his comment was that atheists have spiritual needs also. So he wants to go and be an atheist chaplain to the men and women in the military. Now, I think, personally, I think he's got another thing in mind, whether he knows it or not. I think he's trying to redefine some things. We are constantly redefining what is always, we've always known and understood. Hey, we've redefined marriage, we've redefined gender, let's redefine what a chaplain is so things begin to get totally meaningless so we can take things where we want to go. Extremely intelligent guy, don't get me wrong. But I find myself in this question. If you, have, if you want to become an atheist chaplain because you say, atheists have spiritual needs too, and that's what he says. I find myself saying, hey, why don't you just tell those atheist people in the military? Why don't you just tell them the reality as you know it? Look, your life is meaningless. You may die in battle, you may not. So what? So what? You're nothing. This universe is nothing. It's interesting, but it's nothing. It has no moral value to it. So quit wrestling with these spiritual needs and let's get real. We're here in a moment of time, we're gone. There's nothing more. But nobody believes that, see. Nobody truly believes that. 
If purpose and morality are merely constructs that evolved somewhere along the line in our development from amoebas, why don't they dismiss everything as ultimately meaningless? They've constantly got to invest purpose and morality into their worldviews. Why does Richard Dawkins even find it necessary to oppose Christians in a biblical worldview? Why bother? Why are you bothering Richard Dawkins? What's the point of that? You go out and golf. Go out and do something that's fun. Why do you feel the need to shut this down? Because you know it's meaningless anyways. So why are you investing yourself in something that's meaningless? Because whatever you put in its place is also meaningless. Now, I'm making a little bit of a political side here. But understand where I'm coming from in terms of this general argument, okay? I am, it seems to me that within our culture... Throwing God out, throwing the Bible out, throwing Scripture out, uh, you know, the big wall but separation between church and state, that always seems to me to come from a more liberal perspective in our political world. So please understand that that just seems to be the case to me. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't want to over, oversimplify. I do want to ask a question, though. Assuming I'm generally correct on that, why do they, on a liberal political side, think Trump is such a horrible person? Now, here's my point. If they are true atheists who this world has just evolved to where it is, why don't they look at him and say, he sure is an evolutionary curiosity, isn't he? I've never heard one of them say anything like that. They have to make a moral judgment. That's inconsistent with a worldview that says there is no, there, there, there's no way we can lay a foundation for morality. It's just a construct of our own thinking and in that way it has no real meaning. See, every time, friends, listen to me now, every time from an atheist worldview, they inject purpose or morality into the discussion, they affirm what our text says here today, that there is eternity in their hearts. That something does matter beyond this physical moment in time. There is an inescapable, undeniable perception they can't get away from that something is bigger than their immediate experience in this moment. Cannot escape it. Now, they may admit they've got a bigger perspective. They may admit that, yeah, I do believe that there is such thing as right and wrong. I do believe there are things where we, there must be a purpose for something. But we alone can affirm why the perspective makes sense. We know why we have the perspective, and we know why it makes sense, because we're created in God's image, and he has placed this in our hearts. Where did it come from? If it just evolved, and what is the foundation for it? There is none. Now, they could even go far as to agree, logically, yes, you're right, that this is all senseless. But they never do, at least not consistently. How do I know they're not consistent? Because they're like me. Right? 
You say, if guy says, oh, it's all meaningless, it's all purposes, there is no such thing as morality, there is no such thing as purpose in this world. I just live my life like they don't exist because God doesn't exist and nothing that invests morality or purpose into our existence. Then I would just like to run a little experiment where I can cheat them out of about $100,000. And then I want to know whether or not they just go, ha, you know, in this random world in which we live, I just lost $100,000. Wow, I didn't see that coming, but that's okay because there's nothing wrong that you took me for $100,000 because right and wrong don't exist in my worldview. They're not going to respond that way. You know and I know they're going to respond with a very strong moral perspective that says they have been wronged. Oh, really? How does the idea of wrong or right fit in a world system where everything is just random? I don't know, but it does. So, one day, maybe this is the word, one day, I just really would love to inject one word into the English lexicon. You guys haven't taken the other ones from me and run with them. I'm just waiting to hear them come back to me. It's like, I started that! No, it hasn't, so I'm going to try another one. Okay, I got another word I'd like to throw in. Because now, starting now, I am going to self-identify. We like to do that in our world, right? That's the big thing. I get to self-identify. All right? So, <laughs> I wasn't planning on saying this. It just, it just came to me. Um, how was this? Here's a picture. It says it was just three sequences. Here's a picture of a man. Here's the picture of the woman, the very much just men, women. And then here's a picture of a wheelchair. And it says, if you belong in this restroom and you follow my wife or my daughter into this restroom, you're going to need this restroom. Okay? I thought that was, was kind of clever. So in this world, we get to self-identify, right? As to what restroom you want to be in. Oh, great. So I'm going with the whole self-identity thing. And from here on, I'm going to identify as an atheist. An atheist. Now, you know what an atheist is. You got the root word is theism, right? Theist, God. A is what we call an alpha privative, which means it's negated. So an atheist is someone who know God in their worldview. Are you with me? That's an atheist. But after contemplating this verse for today, I'm going to become an a-atheist. A, we'll put a dash in there just to make it distinct. An a-atheist. And that is, I'm just figuring, I'm going to identify that there is, I don't believe in atheists. I don't believe they actually exist. Now, please understand. I do, do believe completely there are people who, as Romans 1 says, suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they don't want to keep God in their knowledge. I believe that. Scripture says it. But in order to maintain their worldview, they have to constantly press down and suppress and bury what they know is true in their hearts. And that is a vast perspective. They know there's something more than just their moment in time. Every time they embrace morality or purpose in the world, they expose an understanding that can only be held with God in their worldview. 
You can't have a moral system without a moral giver. A moral lawgiver can't exist, and you and I aren't it. And if you and I decide we're going to be it, then, well, we have our own opinions. That's all we got. It's just opinions. That doesn't mean it's right, true, accurate. There's something, there's something outside of man that gives purpose and morality to this existence, and they know it because God has placed eternity in their hearts too. So I'm, gonna, so I'm going to say I don't believe they're atheists because I've never seen one. They say they don't believe in God because they've never seen God. Well, I've never seen a person who acts like the universe and their lives and all lives really don't matter. And you pretty much have to conclude that, that all lives don't matter if there is no God. They're just random stuff. I've never, ever heard anybody try and live that out in their existence. They admit some things matter. Why do they believe that? Something inside that God's placed there. If they take offense at my perspective that I don't believe they're atheists, then it only proves my point. They want to be valued personally when their worldview must conclude there's nothing about them to be valued. Why do you take offense that I don't believe that you're really an atheist? Why would you be offended with that? Because you should respect my opinion. Really? Why? Why? Why should I respect anything? Because your worldview doesn't make respecting anything significant, important. If, I dismiss, if they dismiss the existence of God, why do they care if I, dis, if, if I dismiss their existence? Nothing need matter to them or about them. They are no more significant than a rock if they embrace their worldview. Okay, I don't embrace that worldview. I believe they're made in the image of God and Christ died for them. You understand what I'm saying? But from their worldview, if they're holding true to that, but nobody believes that about themselves. There is an inescapable, undeniable heart thing that insists there's something bigger than us. They may refuse to accept how it got there, but we know better because Scripture declares God put it there, and to try and escape it is as futile as running from your own shadow. I'm going to take one minute. We're wrapping it up. I want to talk to students. One day you're going to sit, and many of you are going to sit one day in a college classroom, and you're going to think that that person who speaks from the front of the room has all knowledge, and they are the most amazing, insightful, smartest people you ever met. Okay, and some of them are going to challenge your worldview by telling you that there is no God. When that happens... Okay, I'd like you to just keep two things in mind. Number one, number one, what do they know? What do they know that they are able to declare there is no God? What, what kind of insight do they have that they can declare that? That's number one. Number two, I want you to watch. Because every time they make a moral assumption or assert a purpose in something... They have, in, they have stated something inconsistent with their worldview. Because the worldview 
has to conclude nothing matters. There is no purpose. There is no right and wrong. So, maybe you'd like to find out where they're at in that. Cheat in their class and see what they do. Oh, you're saying it's wrong for me to cheat on your test? Why? Why? Evolution has brought me to this point where that's what I do. Why are you saying it's wrong? It's where I am, evolutionary. Magnificent truth here, friends. And we need to understand its implications. Because we live in a world that is growing increasingly hostile to a God-centered biblical worldview. And we need to be able to answer some questions, particularly students. Father, thank you for the privilege of being here this morning, Lord. And uh, thank you that your word has so much to say to us. May we take these discussions very seriously. I pray you'll strengthen us for when the fiery darts of the evil one would defeat us with a worldview that does not incorporate you, that you will remind us that your truth alone will hold up. I ask it in Jesus' name.